I am uh, excited about this series. This series is entitled, We Are Wildwood. And you may think, well, man, that sounds a bit arrogant. Are we trying to promote Wildwood or are we trying to promote Jesus in here? I believe it was the early to mid-1970s that this chant began to erupt in Pennsylvania. We are Penn State. Now, they had been influenced by another school on the West Coast, USC, that said, we are SC. There's also one in, I think it's West Virginia. Is that where Marshall is? Marshall says, we are Marshall. Now, if you are an, uh, a fan of uh, Pittsburgh or if you're UCLA or West Virginia, you probably find that to be one of the most obnoxious cheers on planet Earth. If you're from one of those schools, though, here's what it says. This is who not only we are, but this really is who we want to be, want to become, etc. If we were to have some sort of mantra, it might be that very thing. We are, and then I'm never going to say it in the crowd. I'm not going to say Wildwood out for it, but this would be it. Now, why? Is it because we're particularly excited about ourselves? No, it's because we're excited about what we believe, deeply believe God has called us to do and to be. So here's what this series is going to do. It is going to take a look at the purpose, vision, and mission of Wildwood Church. It is to let you know, how did we get to this place? How did the elders determine this is the direction we believe God has called us to go? And so we're going to look at the scriptures and see what it is that God has called the church to be. Some of these principles you'll see in here are very clear. This is, should be true of any church that's in existence because these are universal principles. Some of the things you may see may be a little bit more localized, contextualized for us here in the northeastern part of Tallahassee. But we are, is who we want to be. Notice that I'm saying it's who we want to be. It's not who we currently always are. It's who we are striving to become, saying, God, we want to give the best effort that we have, but we want to be fully reliant upon the Holy Spirit to take us there and to get us there. So this series just simply is who God has called us to be. Now, there's purpose, vision, and mission. Some organizations refer to these in different ways. They'll, they'll exchange these, move them around. That's fine. For our purposes here, no pun intended, uh, we're going to use it uh, by answering these three questions. The purpose uh, statement is going to answer the question, why do we exist? Why are we even here in existence? The vision is going to answer the question, who are we ultimately called to be and what are we ultimately called to do? And then finally, the mission is going to answer the question, how do we plan to do it? Now, we said this before in a, in a series here um, uh, uh, a few years ago. Uh, wouldn't it be odd if, so? You had, let's say you had a lot of money and you had, were an investor and you had a young, um, uh, clearly uh, filled with energy, excitement, someone that was uh, willing to put in the hours and do the hard work, came to you and said, I'm looking for an investor into our company. And you were to probably ask the question, great, tell me a little bit about your company. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do. We are going to make a lot of money. It is going to be awesome. And you want to get in right now at this time because later on when we blow up, the whole world's going to be, you're going to be one. We're going to make a ton of money. Fantastic. I'm excited. I see your zeal and passion. Except tell me, what exactly are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to make some things and we are going to make money. Great. Can you specifically tell me how it is you plan to make that money? I'm just telling you. You need to join in because we are going to make people rich. 
you would finally ask the question, what is your business plan? How do you plan to go about this? Because everybody that starts out in business says, I can't wait to make money for me, for others. No one starts out in business saying, I can't wait to, to run this business into the ground. Everybody has the best of intentions. But do you have a plan to put that into practice? You know, the same is true of our spiritual pilgrimage, don't you? Man, I, I'm going to be a godly man or a godly woman. Great. How do you plan to do that? Now, do not misunderstand. We have not abandoned our theology. Only God can make us into godly men and women. But we are called to partner with him. And I will tell you this. Depth of spirituality does not happen by accident. Now, what I would like is to be a man who resists all temptation a man who is patient in all circumstances, who has learned to be content in all circumstances, a man who thinks biblically at all times, I would love to do that, but that never comes without a cost. It is going to cost you something in order to grow in your spiritual pilgrimage. Easy spirituality has very little depth. Just look at Jesus. Look at his life. Did it come easy for him? After all, he's God. So what is your plan for spiritual growth? Fully relying upon the Holy Spirit to do all the work that's necessary in you, but what is your plan? So purpose statement we're going to go through very quickly. Uh, we'll, you'll see the uh, passage of Scripture. We're not going to park long at all in those. We're going to park on one in particular for our mission, uh, but these are going to be more drive-bys this morning with Scripture as opposed to um, uh, sitting on them in depth. Purpose answers the question, why do we exist? Why do we exist? To glorify God and accomplish His local and global purposes. Now, this is one that Presbyterian churches don't have to think about. We have this thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it makes it very easy for us. Why are people in existence? Why do we exist? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why do churches exist? To glorify God. To accomplish whatever it is that He has called us to accomplish. Now just listen to these passages of Scripture. There may be some of the first time that you've thought of it in this way. But listen, Isaiah 48, 9-11 says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is very explicit. He does everything that he does for his own glory so that the world will see his magnificence, his majesty, his power, etc. God operates always for his own name's sake. Now, sometimes we get a little offended with that, don't we? You mean to tell me I'm not the center of God's universe? That God just doesn't sit around all the time and only thinking about me and how I can make him somehow or another more fulfilled or satisfied. Wouldn't God be so sad without me? Not one bit. God is completely self-sustaining. God has to do nothing for any of us. But he does everything for his own glory. Now, now hear me. 
This is what makes it so brilliant on God's part. Would you say it is a true statement or an untrue statement? That when God is in his rightful place, meaning he is the one that is in charge, meaning he is the one that is running things, meaning he is the one that people are acknowledging is the best option. When God is in that place, does everything work better or worse? So the most loving, compassionate thing God could do is to do everything for his glory because that's what works best for us as humanity. Things go awry when we choose not to have God sitting up on his throne and placing us underneath his authority. When we step out from that, that's when life goes wrong. And that's when God's saying, look, I'm going to do everything I do for my glory, for my name's sake. And trust me, it's going to be the best thing for you. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the grand vision that the whole entire earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Everything God has done, he has done to bring praise and glory and honor to himself. Can I ask you a very pointed question? What percentage of your life is intentionally lived to the glory of God? I'm not asking you how many times do you blow it, and I assure you you don't blow it as often as I do. I'm asking you when you look at your life, when you've constructed your life, how much of your life is constructed in a manner that you are trying, you are striving, you are praying, God, would you use me for your great name's sake? When you pray, how much of your prayer is oriented around God, magnify yourself in me, through me, over me, around me, do whatever you want to me, through me, so that your name can be praised. Versus how much is, hey God, I need some help. God, would you make this situation a little bit easier? God, would you bring this in so that I could? Nothing wrong with those second prayers. I'm asking you, how much of your life is constructed saying, I want to intentionally magnify and glorify God? Because that's why we are in existence. Now, who has God called us ultimately to be and what has he ultimately called us to do? We're answering the question this way. Wildwood, what are we called to do? We are called to make mature and equipped followers of Jesus who live with gospel purpose. Mature speaks to who we are called to be. Equip speaks to what it is that we are to do. The one passage we want to sit in for a little bit here is now in Matthew. So if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read just a few verses of Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. Verse 16 tells us that the the 11 disciples went into Galilee. They had obeyed the command of Jesus who had just said, hey, go Galilee, I'll meet you there. And so they go and it is that they wait. And it tells us that there's a crowd that is gathered to see Jesus. And Jesus gets up there and it tells us that when he arrives, this is post-resurrection, so he's already been crucified. Now he's been raised again. He has uh, revealed himself to others. And, and so now that there's this crowd that is, is gathered. And it says that they, they believed, they worshiped, but they also doubted. Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. We're not exactly sure what Matthew is getting at. There are multiple possibilities. I won't walk you through all those possibilities. I will tell you what I think Matthew is getting at. I think what he's getting at is this. There are people in Jesus' presence who see with their own eyes. They have an intellectual assent to truth. They, They get it. They understand it. And it takes their heart a little bit longer to catch up with them. And so when it comes to seeing Jesus, we, 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 we worship, we bow, we acknowledge him for who he is. But at the same time, there is simultaneous doubt going on in our heart. What do I mean by that? Meaning, I believe that God can do great and mighty things. I'm just not sure that he will do great and mighty things. And worship and doubt are not mutually exclusive. So they're there. They see him. They worship And they doubt. And then Jesus comes over and watch how just the word all dominates the next few verses. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's no sphere of existence in which I don't have authority is what Jesus is saying. So since it's been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Speaking now to those that had gathered there um, to him, uh, Jesus gives the main verb in this section, which is make disciples. The better way to translate this is probably having gone, therefore, make disciples. In other words, there's a presupposition that Jesus is assuming they're already going to go and flood the earth. They're going to go all the way around. And while you're going throughout the earth, make disciples of all nations. What does that mean to make disciples of all nations? Jesus is abundantly clear in all of his teaching. Make disciples means create followers of me. How do we create it? We don't. God does the work. He uses us in the process to verbalize the gospel story. How will they believe unless they have heard? How are they going to hear unless someone is sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Our initial step in making disciples is to simply share the good news of what God has done. That's not the end of the job, though. That would be like giving birth to a baby and then saying, whew, Work is done. Kid, grow. You just do everything that's necessary. Why are you not eating? Something must be wrong with you. And yet we all the time look at those that just come to faith, don't we? Why is your life not completely changed? Why are you not functioning like a person who's walked with the Lord for 75 years? I guess you're just not a true Christian. No, they're a true Christian. They're just incredibly immature because they've just come to faith. Make disciples means share the good news and then come and walk alongside them with an intentional and methodical effort to help them grow. Make disciples where? Of all nations. Because the purpose of our existence is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the whole earth as the water covers the seas. 
It's everywhere we go. It's in our, ha- our families. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our workplaces. It's in the places where we play. It, everywhere we go, look for opportunities because everywhere we go, there are people right now who are miserable in their existence. Now, there are plenty of people who don't think about it. But all over this globe, there are people that are struggling trying to figure life out. And we have help. I don't want to spend my life watching folks just flounder in life. It would be like a doctor who is comes upon some type of scene and, and, and there's some, maybe someone has been injured in some form or fashion. A doctor has all of this knowledge. He has the ability. looks and says, man, that is a bummer. I just hate that that person right there is really hurt. And he takes about eight more steps up and he sees someone who's laying down on the ground who is shaking, seems to be having convulsions, some sorts. Man, that is really tough. I mean, I have compassion for that individual. That, that's that's got to be hard. And keeps walking and sees another person who is bleeding. Mm, that's awful. That, that, that person's probably not going to make it. Man, I hate it for them. Christians who spend no time looking into the world trying to find out who it is that we can share Jesus with are like doctors who give no help to hurting people. Make disciples of all nations, and it says baptizing them. That means helping them to identify with. They're associating with the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think there's also a literal baptism he's referring to here, but the primary emphasis is on association. Now notice what he says to do. Teaching them to observe. Man, this is so important. What is it that we are primarily to teach people? When they come to faith, what are we to teach them to do? To obey Jesus. We're not to teach them everything that there is in the Bible. That's a good idea. But what Jesus says is, teach them how to obey. Teach them how to hear my voice. Teach them how to listen to the Holy Spirit. Teach them how to fight the flesh. Teach them how to mortify the sins. Teach them how to obey me. Teach them how to to walk with me, to talk with me. Listen, teach them how to hear me consistently. One of my primary jobs as a disciple maker is to teach men how to listen to sermons in a discerning manner. I'm trying to get guys to, to teach them how to listen to me and question what I say. Come every week a little bit skeptical as to what the preacher has to say. Teach them to observe, obey all that I have commanded. I love this. Jesus does not go cultish on us. He does not say, David, I want you to teach all of the disciples that you make to follow every word that you say, to obey everything that you teach. Teach them to observe everything I have commanded. How are you doing? Who is in your life right now in which you are helping to grow in their faith? Who are you praying God brings people to me? Who are you looking for saying, God, I think that my neighbor, I don't think that he or she knows you, and I would love the opportunity to just share you with them. And if they come to faith, God, give me the, 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 the wisdom, the discernment to walk alongside them and to help them to obey you. Who do you have in your life in which that's happening with right now? 
Or are you just coming to church? It's good that you're coming to church. But God has called us to far more. Wildwood is only going to be as effective as the people are mature and equipped. Teaching them to to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. And then the great promise that Jesus gives. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is saying, I'm not just going to give you a statement and then say, man, go make it happen. I'm going to walk alongside of you the entire way. So right now you may be saying, hey, I don't know that I'm particularly equipped to do this. Great. We want to equip you, but I can't force you to do it. No teacher in this church can, can force you to do it. You're going to have to choose to do it. Well, that's what we're ultimately called to do. Now, how does it work itself out? Colossians 1, verses 28 through 29 says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is saying, Jesus is the one that we proclaim. He mentions the same thing over in 1 Corinthians. Jesus is the one that we teach. It's not morality. It's not better rules. It's not a better way of living. It's not a better philosophy. It's Jesus that we proclaim. Him, he is the one that we proclaim. uh, For we preach uh, 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 not to ourselves, uh, not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Notice, I toil. I struggle. I labor. Paul would say in other places that he is actually exhausted. He's being poured out like a drink offering. Are you tired yet in your spiritual pilgrimage of laboring on behalf of other people? Have you reached the point where you're saying, I'm just tired? Because I feel like I'm making such an investment all the time. I don't know that I have much left at all. When I think about Barbara and Jane and Sarah and all the work that's been going on in there, man, it, it, is, it is at times exhausting. It's rewarding. I'm thankful for it. I don't want to quit, but man, I am tired of this right now because people are messy. Fred, Jack, John, none of them seem to get it, how to apply these principles at work, but man, I keep praying over and over and over. I am tired of this but I want to keep going. If you're not getting tired in your spiritual pilgrimage, it's probably an indication you're you're not giving a tremendous amount of effort. If you are exhausted, it's okay. It's to be expected. That's normal. I toil, I labor. For what? That we can present everyone mature. You know the difference between someone who is mature and immature. We all know it. I'm not sure I can give you an exact definition of what that looks like, but you know when you have a person in your presence and you say, that person is just mature beyond their years. Or when you say, that person right there is so immature, it was painful and awkward. We want to present people mature in Christ. This has to do with the inward condition of their heart. Here at Wildwood, we've got seven marks of maturity you'll hear more about next week. Seven marks that we say, this marks a mature person in Christ. This is how they view 
life, how they view our spiritual pilgrimage. What we're also looking for, though, is equipping. We want to equip people with the skills that are necessary. Ephesians 4, 1, uh, 11 through 14 says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the sons of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let me sum this up. What he's saying is that God gave in the church all kinds of various people. One of my primary tasks is to open this book up to you week in and week out so that you can understand its meaning. It does not make me more spiritually mature. It means I have a job, and that job is to open this up week in and week out so that we can all better understand God's word. He's given me a role in that process. No senior pastor of any church in the world can mature people, can equip all the people. Can't happen. So there's other leaders throughout the church, and their job is to equip, get this, you for the work of the ministry. Do you know who the primary minister of Wildwood Church is? You. I'm one dude, and I'm really average. I'm not particularly handsome. I'm not particularly unattractive. I'm not particularly humorous. I'm not particularly overly overly serious. I'm, I'm, I'm a decent communicator. I'm not a great communicator. I'm one average dude. I can't take over Tallahassee. But you're scattered all throughout Tallahassee. And there's a bunch of you. And my job And every elder and deacon's job in this church is to make sure you have the equipping that is necessary so that you can minister most effectively. Do you know who the best minister is to your neighbor? You. You can invite me over. I'd be happy to do it. I really would. I love to talk. You put me in a room, I'm going to be just fine. I'll be happy to come over to your house, talk to your neighbors. I'll be happy to ask them spiritual questions. Happy to do that. But what they're going to say is, Who is Wildwood Boy? Why is he over here? The guy that talks a lot, enjoyed him. uh, But can you tell me, you are going to be far more effective because you know your neighbor's story. And you know them better than And you're going to pray more often than I am for your neighbor. Because you're going to see him more. you got a better chance to listen and to hear. So our job is to equip you to do the ministry. Can I ask you a question? How equipped do you feel? If you do not feel equipped, please come and we want to train you. What we are offering right now at Wildwood is, is quite honestly, is awesome. And I mean that. And most of it's because I'm not offering it. We got other people on staff that are offering incredible seminars and classes and opportunities and, and it, it is wonderful what we had. The last uh, previous three weeks um, in a row, we had some incredible equipping uh, on how parents can equip their children to understand some of the, the basics, but also some of the more um, uh, crucial aspects of the faith. The primary reason I see children uh, go off to college, students go off to college and abandon their faith is because they, they don't understand um, the views that are acceptable of, of, of uh, creation. 
Like there's multiple views you can have and still be within the bounds of biblical orthodoxy. And they don't understand what we mean by inerrancy um, in the scriptures. They don't understand um, uh, that I can make this statement publicly and say, do I believe that every single letter of this English 2000 whatever 20 version of the ESV is the exact same thing that Moses wrote? No, I don't. But I believe this is such a faithful representation of it. We know exactly what Moses put down. And there's reasons for that. We just had incredible opportunities for you to be equipped. Loved the people that came. Everyone who came out said, man, this was so, so great. Thanks for you guys for offering that. I had one of those weeks. How are you taking advantage of the opportunities that are in existence right now? to partner with God, and to be equipped so that you can do the ministry. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you as hard as I know how to challenge you. Look for ways in which you can be equipped. We can offer many things. We're going to come and personally challenge you throughout this year. We've been talking about it as a staff for a while now. But, but, but I can't force you to be equipped. I can't put that want to in you. But if you want it, Oh, we've got some opportunities for you. So take this year, look and see what we have, and uh, come and uh, uh, be equipped. Gifts, Paul tells us, are not toys that we get a chance to play with. They are tools by which we have been given in order to build and construct, um, etc. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Matthew chapter 16, which is where I close our time. Jesus says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus is talking to Peter at a time in which Peter does not have a robust faith at this moment. Peter is the guy that, remember, that stood up and said, hey, Jesus, everybody's going to abandon you. Even if they do, I want you to know I'm going to fight until the bitter end. And he did. And then when he saw that Jesus was going down the road of going to be beaten and crucified, that's when things really shifted for Peter. And he lost his faith. And it says that he denied Jesus three times. Now, that is after Jesus has given these words. If you're Jesus, are you going to go to somebody that you know is going to deny you three times, going to walk away, abandon the faith, and say, on you, I'm going to build the church? Well, the good news is that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't build his church on an individual. He built his church on this statement. What is that statement? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the church is built on which means that I am intentionally understanding that I am throwing my hands up in the air and surrendering, saying, God, you are in charge. I'm placing myself intentionally, willfully, joyfully underneath your reign and rule. And I'm saying, you can have whatever you want to have. You can do whatever you want to do. This is the church. And this group of people who have surrendered their lives over to the, and being submitted to the Lordship of Christ are going to go on the offense and advance the gospel. Jesus promises you're going to go right up to the defensive gates of hell. 
You're going to minister right at their shadow, and you're going to move in and, and take over territory. Why? Because I'm going to be with you. The little Christs are going to make their way all throughout the earth. And through the foolishness of preaching, which is not what I'm doing right now, the foolishness of preaching means just simply the proclamation of God's word. Through that, people are going to come to faith. And we're going to come alongside of them, help them grow, so that when they get mature enough, they can do the same thing in the lives of other people. Jesus says, hell has no chance. Because I'm going to do the work in the same way that death was overcome. In the same way that sin was overcome by Jesus, the church is going to overcome the kingdom of darkness. Do you want to go on offense? Or do you want to sit back on defense? And watch as the world goes to hell in a handbasket. And even be moved and cry and hurt over the, the pain of people. Or do you want to be on mission and walk in such a manner as to see Jesus Christ do incredible things in you and through you? Don't sit back. Join in on the mission. Grow up. That is not a statement of condescension. Grow spiritually. Let's all grow up so that we can reach out. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is what you are made for. And there is where you'll find satisfaction.